Good morning. Good morning. If it please the court, counsel. My name is Deanna McCashin. I represent the heirs of Richard Oslin, the injured worker in this workers' compensation matter. Approximately five years ago, I stood in front of this esteemed body and argued on behalf of Ms. Hartwig and Mr. Ekdahl um, regarding their permanent total disability benefits that were being reduced by their retirement pensions. <clears throat> there was a lot of uproar about that concept that this court adopted that in fact the insuring entities of the governmental employees um, had been misapplying the statute. And basically it was because I'm sure of the money involved. What happened well pardon me Court of Appeals, sorry, I always get my, I always tell others than when their microphone's <laughs> off, and now I just did it. I mean, it wasn't just the insurance companies. The, the Department of Labor and Industry was interpreting it this way. The WCCA had decades of case law interpreting the statute. Correct. So, I mean, it isn't like the insurance companies were off on a lark and a frolic here trying to, to they weren't bad actors, I guess is what I'm saying. I, I'm not meaning to imply that. None of us know that because we weren't. I, I was not for sure a part of any of those cases in those days. Um, but what happened after uh, this decision by this esteemed court was uh, made in August of 2014, the conversations that were going on, I believe, were primarily um, regarding the entities and the special compensation fund and how do, how do we interpret and how do we apply it and what happens to the underpayments for a whole bunch of folks. <clears throat> Unfortunately, for whatever reason, no one came forward and said, okay, we need to figure this out. We need to figure out what the underpayment to the injured workers are all these years backwards and figure out how do we um, pay them. But none of the insuring entities, as far as I know, took any steps for over a year to even start the process of calculating underpayments. Council, it's not in the record, but can you give us any sense based on your work on this issue as to how many such cases of public employees there, there are that had to be dealt with uh, after the Eklund decision? I do not have those numbers. I know that auto owners had two. Right. Do we, do we have any ideas to the, the rest of the dimension of the problem? I, I do not know. Um, the numbers, I believe, in terms of the money when you include uh, reimbursement, if, if reimbursement to the special compensation fund had to have occurred without the legislation that was passed, was large, even in this case. I said Eklund, it's Eckdahl and Hartwig, right? Pardon me? It's, it's Ekdal and Hartwig, right? Right. Okay. Um, so, so what happened is the department sent out letters to the various entities that insured them. Some were insurance companies, some of them were the insurance, uh, like the League of Minnesota Cities and so forth, and said, look, 
you have to figure this out. You have to tell us who, who's the injured workers that are affected by this and start calculating what you owe them. <clears throat> um, over time, some insurers apparently did that fairly quickly, paid them, and life went on. But some did not. Some said, no, we don't believe we owe them under, over, underpayments, and um, we're not going to pay. And if we do, we're going to end up owing the special comp fund. And that created a whole problem that between the insuring entities and the special compensation had to be worked out. Hence, the legislation that was the, the key or the center point of this particular case today, the Oslin case. <clears throat> and the purpose of that legislation that was passed was to provide a means for insuring entities to avoid having to reimburse the special compensation fund, for example, in this case, over $400,000 because of the benefits that they had reimbursed to auto owners. <clears throat> So they passed the statute, but if you look at the statute, the name of the statute, it's clearly between the insuring entities and the special compensation fund. <clears throat> when uh, the Oslins were contacted and said, your, or the Oslin heirs were contacted, that um, said your father is entitled to an underpayment of benefits, the process even though it could have been determined as of the day of the Ekdahl and Hartwig decision. I mean, the numbers are there. The numbers didn't develop later. All of the numbers could have been determined the day after um, the Ekdahl and Hartwig decisions, but they didn't do it. <clears throat> Eventually, auto owners in this case said, yes, we owe this to the Oslins, and hence, we had all of the steps that occurred. It was you know, Oslin's position that they were entitled to an underpayment. They were entitled to interest on the underpayment. They were entitled to penalties for the failure of auto owners to promptly act and pay benefits when due, and that they should be reimbursed for the cost that they had to incur in order to establish that they were the heirs. <clears throat> When we went to the trial court and made our arguments, um, both parties, very few things that the parties agreed on, is that the new statute did not apply to this case. Nothing in that statute precluded the Aslan heirs from making their claims. Nothing in that statute precluded the insurance company from making their defenses. So Judge Tate issued her decision. The Oslin heirs appealed a portion of it. Auto owners appealed another portion of it. <clears throat> when um, we argued the case in front of the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals, there was no mention, as I recall, of anything to do with Minnesota Statute 176-1292 or the applicability of that statute to the claims of my clients or the defenses of auto owners. Despite that, the Work Comp Court of Appeals applied it. 
and uh, remanded it to Judge Tate to determine uh, how it applied to these facts. Why, why should uh, why, why should we um, look? Should we look to the date of Eklund, or should we look to 1996? In terms of when interest starts. When the what? When interest starts to run. It's my position that the date of the statute has nothing to do with the rights of the injured workers to interest on, pen on benefits that were underpaid. The date of injury has always controlled. I, I, okay, thank That's a different, I, I was, well, you can answer that question. But my question is, you're saying we shouldn't apply this new statute as the as a time as a time when the the rights became vested in a sense. So, but other alternatives are the date that the Eklund decision came down, when interest would start to run, not what the rate would be, but when it would start to run, or 1996, when they stopped paying him because he started to get para benefits. Correct. So, why? What? Which one of those two would you prefer we choose, and why? Which interest statute are you asking? What date should it start? There's a dispute about what date interest starts to run, right? It's my position, as stated in my brief, that interest began when the first underpayment occurred in 1996. The case law is clear that if you have established a right to work comp benefits and then it is not paid, um, on time, you're entitled to interest. The interest is based on uh, the rate applicable for the date of injury. In this case, it's 8%. Um, that was one of our issues on appeal. Interest going back to 1996 is consistent with what the decisions have always been in the workers' compensation matter. Council, what about the death benefits area, though? I mean, some of the WCCA interest cases analogize to the death benefit law. And there, we apply the law in effect on the date of the employee's death, not the law in effect on the date of the injury. So why wouldn't we apply the same logic to this situation? There's the, the decisions regarding those are talk about a controlling event. The controlling event in the um, in individuals that had underpayments of their permanent total uh, disability benefit was when the benefit was due. The controlling event for dependency benefits in a death case is when the dependency's claim started. So that you can't go back to their date of, to the date of injury of the injured worker. The controlling event was the death. But in the absence of our opinion in, in Ekdahl and Hartwig, I mean, the law was as set by the WCCA. And under that law, under those cases, the offsets were proper. The offsets for um, retirement benefits, is that what you're saying? Yes. I, yeah, I believe that is true. There are some decisions out there from the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of one of them that actually came to see me um, after the Work Comp Court of Appeals um, turned down his claim that his benefits had switched from uh, disability benefits to retirement benefits and therefore they should be taking the offset. And it is kind of a, 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 an odd situation that we have here where 
state statute gives the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals statewide jurisdiction. And the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals, I'm reading from the statute now, is the sole exclusive and final authority for the hearing and determination of all questions of law arising in the context of workers' compensation statutes. So according to the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals, in, until we decided Ekdahl and Hartwig, these offsets were proper. So it just seems to me the argument here about using, um, well, I guess I'm, I'm just not understanding why your view is that the date of the opinions in Ekdahl and Hartwig wouldn't be the controlling date for deciding when interest starts to run. It could certainly start that date, but if you look at the work in this case, that could be an option. And if you saw one of the um, concurring opinions in the um, Work Comp Court of Appeals case and the Oslin case, um, that would be an alternative date to what, what my clients believe is the correct date, which is dating back to when the first underpayment be, uh, occurred. Uh, what happened when the Court of Appeals essentially retroactively applied 1292 to deny interest and penalties to the Oslins is that they did not have an opportunity. Um, and I don't, first of all, I think the way that the uh, Court of Appeals um, applied 1292 is what makes it unconstitutional, not necessarily the statute itself. What well, um, is, is, there's no disagreement here that they owe the money for the, the benefits that were offset, right? Correct. But under the chief's argument, wouldn't that, I mean, that argument would say they don't owe that money because the law of the WCC up till 2014 was the law of the land until we turned it over. So if, they, if everybody's agreeing that the money is owed for those lost benefits, then wouldn't the interest that's really the holding cost of that money also be owed from 1996? I believe you could interpret the, the, the prior case law from the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals in that manner. However, interest is payable when, it, when there's already, we have already established. That's my point. Right. Yeah. Council, essentially, as I understand it, there may have been a mutual mistake of law for a number of years until this court acted in Ekdal and Hartwig. Um, in, make your best argument that when there's a mutual mistake of law, both sides are mistaken as to the law, um, and then there's an, and it turns out there's an underpayment, then interest should be awarded. The, the purpose of interest is to... Uh, to pay back to the person that was entitled to the benefit and did not receive it in, in a timely manner. If you now say, well, whoops, I guess we were wrong. We should have paid that, but we're not gonna pay interest on it. That entity that has to now pay had the use of that money all of the time. Whereas the injured worker, dating back to 1996, until his death in 2013, did not have the use of that money. Um, that's the whole idea of the interest penalty. And there was nothing that the injured worker did incorrectly. I mean, we agree that um, Ekdahl and Hartwig, both of those decisions, certainly said 
no, you cannot take an offset for permanent total disability benefits because it's not in the statute. It wasn't back in 1996, and it isn't in, in today. Council, um, I think sometimes people have an idea of interest as a penalty, and um, that's what I want to check. I mean, when I read the Bordeaux case, for example, um, we're not, we wouldn't be awarding interest to penalize auto insurers. It would just be, as you said, this was a payment that was owed since 1996, and they should have had the use of that money since then. Right. There's a difference between, as noted in my brief, there's a difference between an interest being assessed versus a penalty being assessed. Certainly, when you look at the claims made by the Oslin heirs, they are claiming back interest back to when the, the underpayment started occurring in 1996 because auto owners had the use of all that money all those years, whereas Mr. Oslin and his uh, subsequent heirs did not have the use of that money. Penalties, on the other hand, if you look at our claims, my client's claims, is it starts as of the date of the Ekdal Hartwig decisions. It's our position that a penalty is punitive. It is to say to the insuring entity, you have a duty to know the law, to apply the law correctly, and to do it in a timely manner. And if you do not do so, you will be penalized. What is that timely matter? Because I mean, I, I know you're, you made the argument that on that date they should have known it's an easy calculation to make. But there has to be some period of time where they, I mean, where they go back into their books I mean, and can figure out who these people are and calculate the numbers. So how long, how long is that period of time? Right, and as, as I pointed out in my brief, auto owners is in a unique position in that they only had two injured workers to deal with this issue on versus let's say a Minnesota Insurance um, Trust, where they had perhaps hundreds of them. I don't know the numbers. So surely they had to have some time, but an entire year had gone by and the data was available because all you have to do is know the comp rate and know um, the sub rate. And you can calculate what the underpayment is very quickly. I mean, it, so it would take time certainly to identify them. In this case, when the department wrote to auto owners in 2015, the actual auditing and getting the attorney and doing all of that took over a year. It wasn't until September, I believe, of 2016 that there was some agreement on what the underpayment was. Is there, is there anything in the record that tells us how long it took them to identify the two, or well, it doesn't mean the two, this, the, the particular, Mr. Osland? There was a problem with, with this case. I think the identity of the two uh, injured workers insured by auto owners um, was done within, I think, two months. But then there's a gap, because they wrote to the department and said, now what do we do? We have these two injured workers who are deceased. What are we to do with the underpayment? And they sent the letter or email, whatever it was, to the department asking that question, and yet, when no response came, they didn't follow up. But they figured that out within two months, kind of the facts they needed in response to the department, they were able to figure that out in two months. In two months, that's my understanding. Um, and I think it took them, I think they were within the guidelines that the department had asked. Anyone presently receiving permanent total disabilities that are affected, we need within 30 days 
Um, and then they gave them a leeway because these were deceased employees that took a little longer to find. But why they waited um, over a year to do an audit, to hire an attorney, and to come up with a number uh, is beyond me. I, I don't understand. And that, that's Does the fact that the legislature um, in 2017 took up this issue and the Minnesota League of Cities started pressing this issue in 2017 tell us anything about the confusion uh, left after Ekdal um, in the industry and among the, uh, among the players? Perhaps in the industry, but I don't think in this case. Auto owners always said, we know we underpaid them, we know we owe them. Um, so there, that wasn't a defense to the penalty claim. There were cases that I was involved with, other cases that uh, this law affected, um, where um, that argument was being made. We don't, we don't know how this is all going to work, and we don't want your, your client's claims to go forward until we figure out what's going to happen to the uh, payment, overpayment by the Special Compensation Fund and how that all works. And we have either two options. We can certify the question to the Supreme Court, and have them decide how to handle this, or we can do it legislatively, and, and they decided uh, between the insuring entities and the Special Compensation Fund to go through the um, um, uh, legislature. But the injured workers' rights to claim interest, to claim penalties, it was all preserved in 1292 because that wasn't the intent of that statute statute was to answer that question. So by the Court of Appeals applying that statute to take away rights that injured workers have to claim penalties of interest is where it went afoul. But your, so your argument is even though there was confusion in the industry, it doesn't matter in this case because this insurer wasn't confused. Right, correct. And, and I don't know that they were, con that the other entities were confused. I think they were concerned about um, the exchange of money between insuring entities, a special compensation fund, assessments, and so forth. Um, as you know, the um, Department of Labor and Industry uh, filed an amicus brief in this case, um, in, uh, you know, arguing that um, the Work Comp Court of Appeals was incorrect in applying 1292 to deny uh, penalties and interest. That were, those were claims that were not extinguished by 1292. <clears throat> the um, penalties issue uh, is, is, is difficult um, because I, I am aware that some of the larger insuring entities had a number of these uh, cases, and I, and I believe those penalty determinations would have to be done on a case-by-case -case basis. I don't think there can be a general rule that you know, within six months, if they hadn't calculated and paid or whatever, there should be penalties. I, I don't think that works. Um, and that's very unique to the work comp. Almost every case that we hear, every case that's tried, um, is unique to its own facts. And they change um, how uh, one looks at the application of the law to those facts. And like I said, I, I know that I have several clients related to this issue um, through the um, uh, 
that were um, Minneapolis police officers. Uh, they had heart attacks back in the, in the 70s and 80s uh, and began receiving PTD back then. And those number of cases that the city was dealing with, the city of Minneapolis, you know, were, are considerably more than what auto owners was working. And there, there would have to be some acknowledgement of that, um, that it does take time to figure it out. And, that, and it did take time for the insurance entities and the special compensation fund to find an answer to those issues between those two competing uh, bodies. I briefly touched in my brief on the taxable costs. In this case, <clears throat> auto owner says, said in September of 2016, we owe you at a minimum 159,000 some odd dollars, but we won't pay you until you can tell us who your heirs, who the heirs are. <clears throat> um, Mr. Oslin died without a will. Everything that he had went to his wife as a joint owner. She died a year later, and um, her will was probated, and everything went to the, to the children. There was no document that showed who uh, Mr. Oslin's heirs were. And therefore, in order to receive the payment and the underpayment, they needed to have a document, a court order, saying they're the heirs. Counsel, your red light's on. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. All right, thank, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Falsani. May it please the court, I'm Kelly Falsani. I represent Auto Owners Insurance Company and Crow Wing County in this matter. Interest is not payable in this matter because the underpayment of permanent and total disability benefits never became fixed or ascertainable until after the Ekdahl and Hartwig decisions. The counsel for appellants certainly uh, admitted as such during the oral argument in the sense that those decisions were watershed decisions. It's a difficult decision for the court. Well, and I don't I understand think that's that. opposing counsel's position. I think her position is they were obvious. They were compelled by the plain language of the statute. However, the point being, the WCCA, for 30 plus years, the Department of Labor and Industries promulgated rules in Mr. Oslin's case, because he was receiving supplemental or supplementary benefits, had the offset provisions. The entire, the entire work comp system, the apparatus, had the offsets as appropriate. That was the law of the land. So, counsel, the, I discussed with opposing counsel the idea that maybe there's a mutual mistake of law. Is that what was going on here? The insurance companies thought they could take the credit. The, the employees looked at WCCA decisions and thought they should take the credit. It's a mis mutual mistake of law, isn't it? Well, the WCCA had three cases. They had the, the uh, Kramer case, Adamski, and Wicks. I, I know that. Okay. And so, so is it a mutual mistake of law? It's a, it's an, a, a, a wholesale change in interpretation by this court in, on August 13, 2014. Both parties were mistaken as to what the law was. All I know is that the, the, the business as usual was turned on its head after 30-plus years of how things were handled. Plaintiffs with counsel 
took this very issue to the WCCA three times, right? And the WCCA found that the offsets were appropriate. Never did they appeal it to the Supreme Court up until the Ekdahl and Hartwig cases. So it's only so, in hindsight that we look back and say the credit should not have been taken. Well, exactly, because that's after the Ekdahl and Hartwig cases were decided. The, but, but remember that even though the... So if you've got a mutual mistake of law, both parties are mistaken as to what the law is until this court decides what the law is and makes that clear. Why is it fair for the insurance company to have the benefit of what should have been the employee's money? I, Justice Lillyhog, I don't think it's a mutual mistake of law in the sense that the parties, the state, everyone involved in the workers' compensation system handled it the same way for 30-plus years. That was the law, okay? The decision that this court made in Ekdahl and Hartwig changed the law. Although it's not a change of statute, it's a change of law. Yeah, but your, your, your client is not suggesting that the Ekdahl decision is not retroactive. We made the, the underpayments. Right, for, it for is the, retroactive. Understood, yeah. We so, made. So why is it retroactive with regards to principle? but it's not retroactive with regards to interest. Because that's not what the case law says. The case laws in, in Minnesota workers' compensation especially is that until something, until a benefit that was unpaid or underpaid is known and ascertainable and fixed. That's WCCA law. I'm just looking at the statute and it says in subdivision seven, interest is, uh, is due, let's see, uh, any payment of compensation um, shall bear interest from the due date to the date the payment is made. So what, what is there about this change in law that suggests that the principal was due, but interest is not due? Because interest in, in that type of a case would be a penalty. It, the case law, Justice, is that well, it's you, not, well, let me follow up on that. What do you mean when you say it would be a penalty? Because if you don't know and if you can't ascertain and you don't have any clue, no clue whatsoever that the underpayment was an underpayment until after Art Dull Hartwig, then interest should not be payable. But why are principal, I mean, your client acknowledges principal is due. So why separate interest? Normally interest follows principal. But that's not what the case law says. The case law says in Lapinin, the Supreme Court in 1947 says, until the liability is known, there's no accrual of interest for past benefits, okay? And that's followed in this court in Hop as well as in Myers. And so un until Ekdahl and Hartwig, there's absolutely no clue by any of the parties in this matter. This, the evidence in the case is that, the work, that auto owners did, did not know that uh, until after Ekdahl Hartwig that uh, there was a, an underpayment or a potential underpayment of permanent and total disability benefits. But, counsel, that argument does seem to me to turn on fault. Nobody is faulting auto owners for taking that position. And um, nobody's faulting, you know, the plaintiffs. I don't th think the plaintiffs can be at fault for following, you know, the WCCA and the, um, the administrative rule. So when we have a situation like that, why shouldn't the interest go to the party who we now know should have had that interest? Okay, well, <clears throat> the courts have made essentially what's a poli policy decision, right? You have a situation where, yes, you're going to, to pay the retroactive underpayments, 
but you're not going to saddle the payor with additional uh, interest when that underpayment was never known, never ascertained, and not fixed until after the Ekdahl and Hartwig decisions. And that's something I believe this court but, should, should follow. But in Lebanon, they didn't claim, they didn't claim the benefits. And, and then the court said, we're going to start interest after you claim the benefits. Here, the meaning of Ekdahl is that they actually claimed the benefits back in 96, but because you didn't pay them, and you've agreed to that because you're paying them the benefits back to 1996. So I, I, I still don't quite understand. It seems to me that once you've conceded that you owe the benefits back to 1996, the interest follows with the benefits. Well, because I that's, I mean, they, they claimed them. The, they won the award. The, the, the benefits were paid under the law as known for Mr. Osland. It was acquiesced to by him. It, the offsets were taken for many years, and the payments of sub-benefits were made by the insurer and then reimbursed by the special compensation fund. Yes, my clients did make the $159,000 payment. We never disputed that in our answer to claim petition that, we, we, that there was an overpayment, that we found out that we used a forensic accountant to find out. Correct. But even in the Lapinen case and then others, yet there is a time frame where if there's no liability or no, not known, no known liability, how can interest accrue? Because the worker in that case didn't claim the liability until they did, and then at that point, interest kicks in. But here, but this court has said, you owed them that money. They claimed it in 1980 when they won their award for the, for the, their, the workers' compensation award, and then they changed over, the benefits changed, but as of 1996, they were entitled to those dollars. The, the benefit... And, well, were they entitled to those dollars in 1996? Was, was Mr. Oslin entitled to that money in 1996? The, the, the Ekdahl-Hartwig underpayments yes. were paid by my clients after the Ekdahl and Hartwig but decisions But were they owed the money in 1996? Was, they, he, was he owed the money in 1996? No, they, he was the, owed the money after Ekdahl and Hartwig because... Then why did you pay him back to 1996? Because there's a retroactivity aspect to it that we didn't want to fight. And, and so quite you frankly, paid him money that, he, that you didn't owe him? We owed him the money, after, or we owed the estate after Ekdahl and Hartwig because Ekdahl and Hartwig was a huge shock to the system. It was a wholesale change in how business was done at, in but workers' Ekdahl compensation. But Ekdahl and Hartwig said you, you really owed the money starting in 1996, and you have paid the money since 1990, go back to 1996. We paid $159,000 as the underpayment of, uh, for the improperly taken offsets after Ekdahl and Hartwig changed. Council, when did the $159,000 become due? When did it become due? Uh, there's a, a few options here that you'll notice in, in my briefing, but the $159,000 was uh, not agreed to, um, and well, it was never agreed to until there was a stipulation signed by the parties in, 20, in May of 2017. I mean, I look at this case and I look at subdivision seven, that's the interest provision, and it talks about the due date. And so I think this case is about the due date. And, and for me, the due date is driven not by what happened in 1996, because as you argue, the law in 1996 was the offset was proper. So the offset became due when we decided Ekdahl and Hartwig. Why is that wrong? I, Judge Quinn in, in the uh, Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals uh, argues for Ekdahl and Hartwig being the due date. I, in this case, that's the starting point 
and I'm asking the court to provide a bright line rule that no interest is payable before Ekdahl and Hartwig. And the reason being is because of like what I've said. This is a shock to the system. It's a whole wholesale change. However, this, the test that's laid out in the case law here is that there's a three-step test, right? The, you have to have, uh, you have to be aware of the claim for an underpayment. You have to have uh, an obligation to payment, pay that, and that payment must be fixed and ascertainable, okay? I think you, you start at Ekdahl and Hartwig, and then at least in the facts of this case, uh, you can look through uh, what happened. You have a situation where the entire system goes, how do we clean up this mess? How do we handle this mess? It takes the department a long time to figure that out. It takes auto owners time to go back to paper files. This is a the so age counsel, of electronic let, files to find- Let me find bring this down home for us here. Let's say I, I get cable TV. And for uh, about 10 years, my cable company charges me a fee. They think it's legal. I have no reason to believe it's not legal. Turns out it wasn't legal. So I get, I get a refund for the fee that I paid. Do I get interest? That depends on a different statutory <laughs> framework and a common law uh, claim. What, what I would say that in this case, what we are uh, asking the court to do is a bright line rule that after Ekdahl and Hartwig, that there's, until after and Hartwig, there's no interest. I, I appreciate your shock to the system argument, but let's go back to my cable example. What, which is fair? Is it fair for the cable company to have been able to use and invest the money that I paid that I shouldn't have been paying? Or is it fair for me to get interest on the money that they used and invested? Well, the, this request that we're making for a bright line rule is a, a request for fairness. And the reason that we're requesting fairness is that my clients issued the underpayment claim to the Oslin heirs. We did what we were supposed to do. It's not fair if no one knows about the underpayment until after Hartwig, Ekdahl and Hartwig to hold my clients to pay yet another additional amount, okay? Another additional amount, this is the, they would be paying essentially the investment proceeds for the money that they withheld from Mr. Oslin. What's, un, what's unfair about that? It, the, the fairness in here is that when you have something as big as big of a law change or an interpretation of the law, and you've had business done as usual for 30 plus years, where my clients followed the, the, the interpretation of the workers' compensation statute by the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals, followed a promulgated rule by the Department of Labor and Industry, and then after Ekdahl and Hartwig did calculate the underpayment and was ready to pay that underpayment, but then to also say, well, even though you had no clue about this and you, you did what you're supposed to do, you did what everyone else did. Judge Quinn, a practicing uh, workers' compensation attorney now in the Court of Appeal, Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals, 25 or 30 years of practice, says th this very line that he says, not only did the employer and insurer not know this, no one knew this. No employer, no insurer, no employee's representative okay, knew this. Okay, let, let's assume that interest does apply here. How should it be calculated and what would be the amount? Uh, are you talking about that interest would apply back to when the benefits were? Yes, back, back to 1996. It should be a variable interest rate. Year, year by year under 549.09? Correct. And have you done that calculation? What does it add up to? Uh, well, we have done that calculation. It's approximately $95,000.
Council, so, in response to your equitable arguments, isn't that really what the legislature has tried to take care of um, with, the, with the one statute where auto insurance doesn't have to pay back the $400,000 that um, it got in supplementary benefits? Yeah, that, the 1761292 uh, is um, a carrot for uh, public employers, public insurers, insurers like auto owners insurance company, my client who insured Crow Wing County for a few years, uh, to get the injured workers or their uh, heirs, pay, uh, the underpayments made. So yes, they, they provided a, a carrot for, for the payers in the system. And then that, or a, and then obviously they did not have to reimburse the special compensation fund for uh, for the reimbursement of supplementary benefits. But remember that the the, the briefing on that issue from the amicus brief from the uh, department notes that the uh, liability was 12 to 18 million dollars across the board. So when we were asking when you're asking questions of appellant counsel about how many individuals it affected, it's a fairly large. Uh, I mean, it's a very large amount of just money that the special compensation fund was willing to forego uh, as part of that. But then you also have to think about it from the perspective of for 30 plus years, the premiums collected, um, how cases were analyzed, were analyzed under that structure. And so my clients, even though they did make the underpayment retroactively after Ectel and Hartwig, they never collected premiums, or, and others never collected premiums to address that the law was actually different. <clears throat> now, I do want to get into the variable interest rate and fixed interest rate <clears throat> argument a bit more. And this is, I think, easy, at, at least an easier decision for the court, because <laughs> none of it's easy, right? That's why we're here today. Um, the independent event is that uh, the underpayment or no payment occurs. That's the triggering event, okay? And ju just because the statute provides that interest is mandatory doesn't mandate the interest rate, okay? The interest rate should be variable because it's practical, it's rational, it makes sense from an economic reality and a financial reality standpoint. If you hold that a fixed rate applies to my clients from 1996 until uh, the the uh, the, pay, the uh, employee's uh, death, you're you're putting in place an eight percent or higher interest rate. Well, that's because the interest rates back in the early 1980s, when I was a very young boy, but uh, with other people in my firm and and parents, you understand interest rates were high back then. That's why the interest rate was eight percent. But it doesn't make sense to make auto owners, if you chose to make us pay the, the interest all the way back at that higher interest rate. The variable interest rate makes well, if sense. If interest rates were high back then, that means that when auto owners was using that money that it took as a credit for Mr. Oslin, it was getting a pretty high investment return, right? Well, I mean, if, they assuming they were, they, they were good managers. I don't take money from Mr. Oslin. It was, they were operating under uh, what everyone knew the law to be. They took, and, they took a credit. They took a credit of his. So they had, they had money that they were able to use but and invest the, the rather than paying it to in Mr. In 1996, Oz. I don't know what Council, the, let me finish my question. <laughs> they took money, they had money by way of a credit that they could use and invest rather than paying it to Mr. Osland, right? Yep, and this was in 1996. I was just pointing out that the statute in existence from, from October 1st, 1977 was the statute that uh, the appellant uh, 
argue should apply, and that's the 8 percent or higher interest Your rate. point is the statutory rate bears no relationship to act the actual cost of money uh, during the period of time that we're dealing with here. Correct. And that's why a variable interest rate should be used, and that's also the Repke court in this is important. It's also important to, to I know you folks are going to be hearing from the, the Minnesota Vikings <laughs> tomorrow, but the Myers case, it's a Minnesota Vikings case, that's where the court uh, the, 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 uh, Mr. Myers claimed uh, significant wage loss benefits uh, not until 2004, I believe. That's the, the court, the court uh, in Myers held that um, the benefits, you, you didn't get interest on the claim benefits even though it was for a number of years well before 2004 because the, the Vikings did not know of those claims. And that case as well as the Henningman case pointed to the statute to, the statute that points to the district court um, interest rate um, or state the, under 549.09. Council, can you address the penalty uh, issue? You heard opposing counsel's argument. What would you say about that? Uh, this, uh, the penalties are um, inappropriate in this case. They're not warranted. The compensation judge, Judge Tate, uh, heard the evidence uh, took it in, under consideration, received all the exhibits, and made factual findings of uh, fa fact findings that should not be disturbed by this court unless clearly uh, erroneous or unsupported uh, uh, by substantial evidence. We believe that this court, along with the WCCA, should affirm uh, the decision of the uh, compensation judge that the penalties are, were not warranted. Council, can you? Um offer some advice on what the standard of review is for the cost determination. I mean, the statute says costs may be awarded, um, and I'm just wondering if we review that. Do we re review the cost decision de novo, or is it an abuse of discretion? Oh, I think it's an abuse of discretion. Uh, I mean, it's a finding of fact. The compensation judge obviously found that it was no, that the taxable cost and reimbursement uh, section of the statute doesn't allow for the uh, decree of dissent to be included or the cost for the district court action. Um, the WCC, I think, when a WCCA went a, a step further to kind of explain that. Uh, our briefing has also discussed that you, you've essentially got a statement of attorney's fees um, in that are cloaked as a, a taxable cost. I mean, the attorney's fees for a probate attorney are included as a cost, as are the filing fees for the district court action. Uh, Judge Tate's a former compensation, workers' compensation plaintiff attorney. Uh, she reviewed the costs and found that they were not um, available under the statute. The WCCA then obviously went through the process of discussing that regardless of whether or not there was um, litigation, the, the heirs had to get the decree of dissent, okay? It's a condition precedent for them to receive those benefits that if they have, had not filed a claim petition, uh, if they had just responded to the folks from auto owners um, with that information, they would have still had to have uh, paid uh, for that in order to receive the $159,000. So we again request that the court uh, affirm the opinion of the compensation judge uh, with regard to the costs. Counsel, could I ask you uh, one more question about the penalties? I noticed in Dolly's um, brief, the department's brief that it suggested that the comp judge had sort of an erroneous view of penalties when um, when it referred to the request by auto owners to the department asking what to do when the people were deceased, noting that 
um, the employers are supposed to, under the statute, do what the law requires. Now, this is after the watershed cases came yep. down. Um, what's your response to that? Yeah, the, um, the, the amicus brief filed in this matter did mention the penalties. What, what's, I think, important is that because of um, the gravity of the, the, the situation after Ekdahl and Hartwig, there was time here that, that the parties, everyone involved in the work comp, workers' compensation system had to take a, a, a step back and figure out what effect is this going to have. Just because auto owners only had two potential claimants doesn't mean that it wasn't, uh, ha it didn't have to go through paper files and go through, um, you know, the electronic files as well as report, prior reports, that type of thing, to figure out who may actually be affected, right? After that, this is a situation where the department took a year to, to, to reach out to employers and insurers, right? They did that in September of 2015. Auto owners got... I think it was the department's argument that in that meantime, um, employers and insurers had the duty to figure it out and not wait for the department to issue some kind of order. Well, th that's the department's amicus brief uh, opinion on it. That's not what the compensation judge found. The compensation judge uh, was the one who reviewed the record as a whole, review, uh, heard testimony from Anissa Weldon at Auto Owners, heard testimony from uh, one of the Oslin heirs as well as arguments of the party, and found that uh, penalties were not warranted. And, and the compensation judge, as well as the WCCA, lives and breathes uh, this and understands the Ekdahl and Hartway case and, and how watershed it was and how much it did turn business as usual on its head. And I think that uh, what you see is, yes, there was a time frame after Ekdahl and Hartwig where parties were, you know, essentially kind of paralyzed or at least trying to figure out what to do, but also waiting for the department for some direction because the department had to be very involved in this. That's where the special compensation fund is. That's how they figure out what to do with potential reimbursement issues. And that's why you see the WCAC, the Workers' Compensation Advisory Council, these, the notes that were attached, or the meeting notes, how intense those uh, discussions were and how there was different uh, arguments about retroactivity. There was, what is this gonna do about assessments? Are we gonna make all of our public, our counties pay back all of the, these reimbursement, uh, the reimbursements? So there's a lot going on in the background, but what you do see is that once the, um, the, the department sends out their letter, auto owner's response. Auto owner says, here you go, Here's the, we've identified uh, two potential claimants, what do we do next, right? And then once the annual claim for reimbursement is sent, auto owner's responds and says, that's a lot of money, we're gonna double check it. And they go to the expense and the time to double check the numbers and they came up with $159,000. They then send that to the department's Dave Dalski, saying, Dave, here is the uh, documentation, here's the, the audit, do you agree with it? Two weeks later he hadn't responded, Dave, could you review this? Can you respond? Then he agrees with that. And then at that point, auto owners reaches out the heirs and tries to start the process of getting those payments made. Thank Can you. Just one quick has have we interpreted has this court interpreted subdivision seven the interest statute uh, since it was enacted i don't know the answer to that all i can tell you is what has been uh the the court has always said that yes interest is mandatory when the statute 
allows for interest. Prior to that, you'll see that I believe it's the Bordeaux case that interest was a common law, right? And, and in Lapinen too, and there Lapinen. was no statute yep. to interpret. So, so 70, we, we haven't necessarily interpreted the language of subdivision ourselves. Not that I know of. Okay. Thank you, Court. Thank you, Counsel. Um, Ms. McCashin, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. I'd first like to address the, inter the interest issue. Be for the 17-year period of time from 1996 until Mr. Oslin died in 2013, auto owners did not have to pay almost $600,000 of his permanent total disability benefits. In other words, they had $600,000 of money uh, that belonged to Mr. Aslan. What do you make of the fact that they ch charged lower premiums, though? So they really didn't necessarily have that money. They charged lower premiums? Well, presumably, if they didn't have to pay these claims, then they would charge lower premiums to people. That's the argument that the council here made. I looked at um, uh, premiums. Uh, by auto owners in 2017 exceeded six billion dollars. Um, I don't. I don't find that to be particularly. Which of course, has nothing to do with the argument. I mean, that's the total amount of premiums collected. I don't know whether. It, I don't know whether there's anything to that argument or not. But as a matter of policy, matter of theory, what's wrong with the, uh, your opponent's argument? What's wrong with? Excuse me. What's wrong with your opponent's argument that they, you know, at least in theory, they charged a lower premium? I don't know that that's been established, first of all. Um, but second of all, the fact that they charged lower premiums doesn't mean they weren't also making money on Mr. Oslin's money. And in the end of this, remember that they didn't have, it ended up that auto owners did not have to pay back $400,000 to the special compensation fund. So, so let me ask you about the uh, time value of money. Isn't the isn't uh, uh, opposing counsel correct that the variable rate is closer to the time value of money than the statutory rate? And if so, if we're going to award interest, an unresolved question at this point, but if we're going to resolve, award interest, shouldn't it be based on the variable rate? There is, I believe, two decisions from this court on interest because before 1977, which is the first year there was actually an interest statute in Minnesota on work comp benefits. Um, they use the prevailing interest rate and the date of injury controlled. The date of injury has always controlled when interest is payable in workers' compensation. If you look at the HOP decision that was referred to uh, by opposing counsel for another issue, um, it states that the date of injury controls the interest rate. Um, in this case, the, the statute that applies to Mr. Osland is 8%. Council, when was the offset payment due? Offset payment due. The offset payment, the, when was the underpayment to Mr. Osland heirs due? Is that what you're asking? Well, the, the case here is about the offsets being right. improper. Right. And I'm just wondering, so, so the insurance company then had to pay the offset back. 
So I'm just wondering what your position is on when that offset payment was due. Well, the underpayment was due as of the date they started taking the offset, 1996 forward. They, could, they didn't pay it until June of 2017, I believe. So even in 1986, even though under the law at the time in 1986, the offset was proper, your position is that the offset payment was due in 1996? Correct. Well, now, is it your position that the offset, was, the offset was proper? I mean, didn't we decide in Ectol that the offset wasn't proper? Wasn't right. that the whole That's point exactly of That's exactly what we determined. In, what you, you decided in Ectol that it was not proper to, to take the offset. Um, someone asked me about the um, mutual mistake of law. I, in this case, the Oslins weren't making a mistake of law. I don't think you can say that about them. They didn't have an attorney until 2017, as far as I know. Um, so it, it may have been a, a mistake of law in interpreting the law, but that I don't think goes to the injured workers. Um, the fact that it was never brought they, to they had no reason to believe that auto owners was taking a credit that wasn't legal. How would they know that? They were, I mean, an individual injured worker in the state of Minnesota, how would they know what, what was happening and whether that was appropriate or not? I think when you look at both the rule that's being cited over and over again in this case and the, the, the statute, uh, it's pretty clear. It says disability benefits. I, mean, I don't, you know, I, I think that was, I, I'm not sure why that misinterpretation happened all those years. I never had a case before um, Mr. Ekdahl and Ms. Hartwig uh, that specifically address that issue. Otherwise, I would have been here earlier. <laughs> um, you, can't, you can't make law unless you have the facts that are in dispute and that, and that challenge what the law is or how it's been interpreted. Although, counsel, there is, I mean, I, I agree with you on that. In fact, in Ekdahl, we actually said, we've been saying this for years. That's how we've always interpreted it. And so there shouldn't have been any mistake or surprise on anyone's part. On the other hand, you know, what do we do about the fact that that is, in fact, how the Workers' Compensation Bar, the Court of Appeals, that's, in fact, how it was interpreted. There was a rule promulgated by the department that suggests that that was the correct interpretation. So what do we do with that? I think you need to balance the equities in this case with that in terms of who was harmed by the misinterpretation of the statute and who gained from it. And I think the answer to that is the entities that insured gained from it, and certainly with the passage of the new law, gained even more because they got to wipe this slate clean as it relates to the overpayments made by the Special Compensation Fund. Is there anything in the statutory text for workers' compensation law that would say, that would help us decide who, uh, in whose favor the equities weigh? I don't believe there's any statute that would say uh, this is how you balance the equities when something, this is a very unusual situation, quite frankly, in the work comp statute because it is all statutory. Why, why are we looking at the equities at all? Why don't we just read the statute? Which, why don't we just read the statute that says interest is due when the payment starts when the payment was due? Why are we, why are, I don't understand why we're talking about equities when we have a, a statute. 
I guess because when they're saying that this, the interest should start on the date that, that um, Ekdahl and Hartwig were just, was decided in August of 14, I, I don't. Well, I don't. isn't the question of when it was due, and they're arguing it was due in August of four, in August of fourteen, and you're arguing it was due in 1996, and our decision is to decide which of those is true as a matter of law. Right. Uh, why, why are we? Cons I, I did anyway. I, I'm not sure why we're getting into equities. I think it's a statutory interpretation issue. Okay, I, I understand your uh, concern. Um, Council mentioned briefly the taxable costs and the decision by Judge Tate. If you read Judge Tate's decision, you will see there's no analysis. And if you look at the statute itself regarding taxable costs, there are certain things that must be set forth. You must win on the issue. Um, and it has to be a cost that is required in order to reach the result. There is no listing in the statute as to what is a taxable cost and what is not. Clearly, in this case, Oslo's needed to spend that money in order to... What is your view about the standard of review on the taxable cost determination? Do we review that de novo, or do we review that for an abuse of discretion? I think you do. Um, it's an interpretation of the statute. You um, review it de novo. Uh, did, were the Oslo's, in order to prevail, required to have this cost? They did. They, weren't, they were not going to get a their underpayment without it. They had no other need for a decree of descent because everything Mr. Oslin owned went to his wife at the time of his death. Council, going back to the statutory language though, it, it says may, the, the workers' compensation court may award um, these compensable expenses. Doesn't that make it more of an abuse of discretion standard? I looked at I looked at a couple of cases, but there were comp court of appeals decisions. I don't I don't think I wrote them down, but there's a couple of cases out there, and they specify you know what they see as as taxable costs in any given case. Cases that that awarded medical bills, uh, hiring of an expert, uh, those kinds of of expenses. But there really is no um, uh, set in the statute uh, says this is and this isn't. And I, and I think then you have to look at the statute and what's the purpose of the statute. And in this case, it is to make sure that the prevailing party has costs that they get reimbursed. We're dealing in a situation where we have very uneven power between injured workers and the insurance industry. Um, and to have them to pay that cost in order to get paid uh, is, does, does not work. Thank you, counsel. Thanks Thank you. to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess. Thank you.